Hi everyone, thank you so much for joining us. Um, my name is Dan Hillier and all of you know the wonderful Dr. Karen Morley and I have the absolute privilege of being your MC tonight. Uh, we are recording tonight's book launch, uh, not for general distribution, but you never know, you may appear on Karen's LinkedIn or her Instagram or her Facebook or even her TikTok, which I've heard she's rapidly <laughs> learning. I couldn't be more excited to join you tonight, um, along with um, some very special guests, Nick Marinelli and Leslie Williams. We're going to get started um, with Dr. Karen Morley, of course, and it is a very exciting day when you receive in the post your very own signed copy of her brand new book, Beat Gender Bias. Before we do start, though, I did want to just quickly um, tell you a little story. I was thinking about uh, gender bias this week, and I did a little bit of research, and there is a fabulous um, documentary on Netflix, Karen, and I'm sure you've seen it, called Maiden. Have you seen it? No. no. Oh, so this is all about the male-dominated sport uh, of yacht racing. Skipper Tracy Edwards led the first all-female crew in the famous race around the world. So I think after tonight's discussion, that will be a great Netflix documentary, of course. <laughs> uh, beats maybe watching the Chicago Bulls. I would assume it would. I would assume it would. So let me, of course, introduce you to Dr. Karen Morley. So Karen, of course, works with executives and HR leaders from a range of organisations to make leadership inclusive and to help grow the coaching capability of their leaders. Karen uh, has held executive roles in government and higher education, and her approach is informed by her experience in these roles. She's a registered psychologist with a desire to align what leaders do with the available evidence for what works. She's also an author of Lead Like a Coach, How to Get the Most Out of Any Team. I've had the immense pleasure of working with Karen for over uh, the last 12 months, and I'll hand you over to her as we introduce her brand new book. Yeah, thanks so much, Dan, and thanks very much for, for emceeing tonight. Um, and thank you, everybody, for joining us. Well, um, and Leslie Williams, who's the publisher from Major Street, is here. And, and when we were planning the book and thinking about, you know, go-to-market timing, little did we know what was actually going to happen. So in early March, when lockdown had just been announced, we were thinking, yeah, yeah, flip a coin. Do we go ahead? Is, is this going to get lost? Is the message of the book not going to be relevant for the next six weeks, six months? I don't know, six years. Um, and I suppose disappointingly and reassuringly, um, it is very relevant, um, I think. So I'm really pleased that we did go ahead at this time to um, launch the book. So as the crisis is playing out, what we can see is that um, we need to continue to maintain a vigilance around gender bias and inclusion, and it isn't easy, and it doesn't just slip into the way we do things. We need to pay really um, strong attention to it. So what I thought I would do is share with you the inspiration for this book, talk a little bit about what's in it, um, and then say some thank yous because I get to be the author um, of the book and I've written some of the words, but there are a lot of people who play a really big role in getting the book um, into its final form. And so the inspiration for this book is not just about gender equality, which is something that I've been interested in for many years, but it was a result of a number of quite um, 
remarkable, memorable conversations that I was having with um, different people. Um, and it led me to think about, well, how could I use myself, in fact, or how could I engage with people in different ways to make conversations easier to have and to help us to keep making progress? So getting to gender equality is not just about the big things, the strategies and the policies, but it's also about how we engage in each other, uh, with each other on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, and I had a few key conversations, as I said, and one of them was with Nick Marinelli, who joins us um, tonight, and we'll hear from him shortly. But there was a conversation with Nick that was so inspiring. We sat down and he said, I really want to focus on uh, diversity and inclusion. Um, I'm, I'm probably going to stay CEO in my organisation for another couple of years. And in the meantime, what I want to do is to make sure that I cement my legacy and I want my legacy to be about diversity and inclusion. And that helped me to think about what my own legacy might be. And then the second conversation was one that I had with a head of HR, a man, and we were about to set up an executive uh, leadership team conversation about diversity and inclusion. And he shared with me, you know, sort of sotto voce, a little bit quietly, that the men in the team felt like they were walking on eggshells. And my instantaneous reaction was, oh goodness, but we women feel like we're walking on eggshells all the time. But actually it was a very interesting conversation. And what I thought about that was, what if there were many more people, men included, who actually wanted to be part of this conversation, but didn't quite know how to be? didn't know what to say. You know, there's this concern about not stepping into conversations because it was about women. Uh, and so thinking about, you know, gender rather than women has been an important turning point, but also this idea of maybe there are people out there just waiting to have different conversations and what could I do to help that? Uh, and I've also, I, I get asked to have conversations with uh, senior leaders, male usually, who are perhaps not towing the party line in terms of diversity and inclusion. And, and they're quite challenging conversations for me. And I was thinking, well, how can I um, help myself here? How can I help to take the heat out of those conversations? And there were a couple I had where I thought, I'm just going to go into the conversation and I'm going to be in service to these leaders and think about what's their perspective, what are they doing and how do they see what's going on? And there were some conversations I had that were particularly inspiring. So out of all of those sorts of conversations, I was motivated to start writing and thinking more about gender diversity and about inclusion. Um, and that led me to a series of posts and blogs and that turned into a white paper and then I thought, well, hell, why not? I think there's a book in this. Um, and so that was how gen, uh, Be Gender Bias um, was born. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about um, the book. Um, and it's got five parts. Um, and it really dovetails between an understanding of what bias and gender bias is um, and a focus on inclusive leadership as, if you like, the antidote to bias. Um, and the 
first part of the book is really a setup. It talks about champions, it talks about Nick, and it talks about this whole idea of the legacy and what we want to achieve. There are chapters then on what bias is, what masculine leadership cultures are, and what a gender-balanced leadership culture actually looks like. The best of both, of course. Um, and the final chapter in the first part focuses on the business case. While individually it's really important for us, um, uh, you know, to, to have our values around fairness and inclusion, but I think in an organisation, when an organisation is there to do business, it's there to produce particular outcomes, um, what we really need to have is a very clear business case. Um, it doesn't have to be all numbers. But there needs to be a really solid reason for why we're putting our energy and effort into this. And the chapter actually outlines a whole raft of ways in which you can do that and ways that other organisations um, are doing that. Part two focuses on how the biases actually play out. Um, and there are three binds that I speak about. Um, and they are, you can't be what you can't see. You're damned if you do and doomed if you don't. And finally, what you see is not what you get. So for all of the chapters, including these three, um, I provide um, some bias busters. Um, chapter one has got two, just to make it a baker's dozen for the book. Um, but there's a lot of focus, not just on what the issues are and what the challenges are, um, but also on what you can do about them. So that's part two. Then part three is just one chapter, but it is perhaps the most important chapter in the book. And that's the one that focuses on organisational culture. And I've had the absolute um, privilege of spending time with the Hassel leadership team and with Ingrid Backer, whom I think, I hope, is uh, joining us tonight. And she's told her story about Hassel and the integration between you know, leadership and their organisational culture, their focus on diversity and inclusion is really cleverly thought through. Um, and so that story really brings to life this important focus at the, you know, the big picture level around the organisation's culture. And from my point of view, if you're not explicitly focusing on inclusion as a part of the organisational culture, you won't get it. Um, but when you do, it makes a really big difference. So part four is actually where I started the idea of beat gender bias back to those conversations and how can we have better conversations um, about bias. So the chapter 10 focuses on how you set up good conversations around, you know, psychological safety, but also thinking about yourself and how, you know, you get quite Gandhian, use yourself as the change you want to be. Uh, and that was one of the biggest learnings, I guess, for me, that if I could show up differently in conversations, that could have quite a big impact on how well they went. Uh, chapter 11 focuses on, you know, the pinch-in conversations. You get the niggly feeling that something might not be quite right. And chapter 12, the final chapter, leave the best for last, is where there are things that really need to be stopped. So that chapter is focused on what are the things that you can notice about um, behaviours that really are not okay? What are some of the things that you can do um, that have a good evidence base? The last um, section of the book is um, an afterward, 
And of course, I talk about how much the world is going to change and how important diversity is going to be. And I really didn't know just how much it would change. And I think that, and my big hope really, is that given all of the changes that we're experiencing, and here we are sort of mid-COVID, that what I really hope is what we're learning about working from home and about uh, relating to each other in different kinds of ways and doing that when we're not so easily connectable will have a big impact on the way we want to do work into the future. So that's my big hope. Um, and I hope that that's something that comes, um, is a, a legacy that I can leave and a legacy from the book. So the people I want to thank, um, I must, uh, uh, thank uh, very profusely um, Leslie Williams um, as the director of Ma Major Street Publishing. She and Vanessa um, have helped me enormously in this book and also in Lead Like a Coach. Um, uh, Leslie is the best publisher in the world. Um, <laughs> I don't, I've never had another publisher, but she, I don't care. I don't need to know any others. Um, she's very professional and incredibly supportive of authors. So, um, um, an absolutely wonderful process to be in. Um, I'd like to thank Nick Marinelli and Ingrid Backer in particular, as well as a number of other people who shared their story with me. There are some anonymous stories in the book. Some of the people, you know, didn't feel comfortable um, putting their name against some of the stories because some of them are a bit harrowing. Um, but in any case, I would like to thank um, them. I would also like to thank my parents. This is, you know, the great cliche of all time. When I was 10, um, I did well at school and they gave me a copy of uh, Little Women. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, I figured that I could be as determined as Joe to do what I wanted to do with my life. Um, I'd also like to thank Debbie, who's my business manager, um, and all of the readers, the people who engaged with my posts and with the blogs. Um, and one of the things that has been um, a, a really wonderful uh, motivator for me has been being a part of the Thought Leaders Network and some of you um, on the call are from that because that's given me a way to give life to all of my ideas and my thinking um, and as well as my desire to kind of change things and play a better part in a more inclusive world. So um, I'm going to toast, this is a toast for all of you. Am I allowed to do that as the author? Uh, get in yes. now. I hope you did bring your glass of champagne. Thank you so much for, for being here and joining me this evening. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs> well, thank you, Karen. Um, I, I, I don't know about all of you, but I, whenever Karen speaks, it is very hard not to listen and not to grow at the same time. So thank you for that little insight into the book. Um, before I introduce um, our next speaker, who Karen talked about, Nick Marinelli, um, Nick is really the focus of the first chapter, and the first chapter is what to do, be a champion, not a bystander. And I think for all of us, that is sage advice when it comes to diversity and inclusion. I've read um, a number of chapters in the book, but Karen, I have to say, I uh, can't wait to get to the last one, but it's going to be hard to beat chapter one. So let's introduce Nick. Nick Marinelli is a non-executive director of the Australian Road Research Board and until very recently was the CEO at Fulton Hogan Australia. He's an industry leader in infrastructure and has more than 35 years experience in infrastructure and the construction materials sector. 
He's had success leading large, complex organizations through turnarounds, transformations, and performance improvement, and has a real focus on excellence and efficiency. He's a quiet advocate for diversity and inclusion, and his story at Fulton Hogan Australia is one of those highlighted in Beat Gender Bias. Nick, over to you. We will uh, have to unmute you though, Nick. He is quiet though, like we said. So there were, there were, there were many, many, many times when my leadership team would have loved to have muted me in a meeting, um, as easy as you could do on Zoom, but anyway. Uh, but thank you for that introduction, Dan. And uh, Karen, thank you for allowing me or giving me the opportunity to share some of my experiences, not only in, in, in your new book, but, but also here tonight. And I, I just wanted to share with the group a couple of my experiences while, uh, while I was at Fulton Hogan. So, so last year, um, while still CEO of Fulton Hogan, I attended one of our regional excellence awards presentation evenings. Um, and at the end of the night, I was chatting with the Rising Star Award winner. Now she was a recent graduate of our secondary school leavers, uh, Young Women in Leadership Cadet Program, and had been with Fulton Hogan for two years. During the conversation, she said to me that she loved working for Fulton Hogan. So obviously I had to ask the obvious, you know, I had to ask the obvious question, why? And, and she said to me that, and her reply was that Fulton Hogan made her feel welcome, made her feel safe, helped her believe in herself. And then she went on to say that prior to joining Fulton Hogan, she had no plans, no dreams. And now after two years uh, is the plant operator of a $20 million asphalt plant and was about to embark on a trade uh, apprenticeship. And finally, she said that it was just great that someone in my position actually knew her name. Now, the following day, reflecting um, on those comments, uh, firstly, I felt proud that I was actually able to make a difference uh, and provide a young person with the opportunity to build her dreams and self-belief. But also the comments, importantly, um, validated the work that we'd been doing as a leadership team to provide a safe and supportive environment where anyone uh, could achieve their full potential. Now, when I say safe or a safe environment, it's not just physical safety that we were talking about. It's also psychological um, and emotional safety. Now, our journey um, started with Karen's assistance. Uh, our journey started a few years earlier uh, when I was appointed CEO of Fulton Hogan. I saw my role, I mean, obviously, you know, when taking on a new role, you, you, you sort of sit down and, and think about what it is you want to achieve and, and, and what you're actually there to do. And I saw my role as leading a successful organisation by primarily providing a positive, by providing positive leadership and uh, creating an environment where everyone felt safe in their individual ability to contribute to the overall success and an environment where everyone could be the best that they wanted to be and reach their full potential. Now, I could not achieve this without a truly diverse and inclusive uh, workplace. And as uh, Catherine, Catherine Banks says in her forward to be gender biased, that means drawing on all the diverse talent that is available and creating an, and creating an environment where everybody can fully participate and contribute. So they were my guiding principles. Uh, when I started on this journey a couple of years ago. And, and, and you know, back then, like many organisations, we believed we were doing okay. Uh, and I suppose for me, that was the fundamental issue, was that when I asked 
the leadership team when I asked the business about gender diversity, the, stand, the standard response was we're doing okay. So I reflected on that and thought, you know, can you just imagine my board's reaction if, um, if I said, every time at a meeting, if I said that we were doing okay at a meeting, every time we were discussing safety or results or operational performance. So I thought, no, this isn't, we're, we're, we're too complacent, uh, things aren't working. And those first early steps uh, when I needed to refocus the journey really started to raise my awareness with respect to bias, particularly um, unconscious bias. We did all the usual things. We talked about gender diversity. We reported on gender diversity. But I just didn't get the sense that we were getting any progress. I just wasn't happy with the speed of the progress or was not happy with the lack of progress. And I also became, I think you touched on it in your opening, Karen, about eggshell. You mentioned that you used the term eggshells. Is I also became aware of a negative or contest culture with diversity uh, being seen as more of a trade-off rather than uh, a benefit. So with, with that all in mind, I thought I had to shift. I had to shift the focus. I wanted to shift the focus, the, 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 the shift of the focus on diversity, just from being that add-on to management discussions to being fully integrated into business strategy. So looking at that, I thought, well, where do I start? Um, so I started with our vision and values, which were embraced by all of our leaders and all of our people. And if I could just share that with you at Fulton Hogan, our vision was to create, connect, care for communities by building the infrastructure that brings people together. And our success, we always believe that our success was attributed to a very strong values-based culture with our decision-making based on, on the values of respect, energy, leadership, and attitude. And we referred to them as our real values. So when you look at that context and you think, well, you know, Fulton Hogan, we employed over three and a half thousand people across Australia. So how could we not embrace diversity when we embraced our community-based vision and real values? There just wasn't that connection there for me. So then it was time to meet Karen again. And this was the question that I asked. I thought, okay, we've got to change this journey. We need to do something. So um, we organised for a meeting and, and, and I think you're, you, you might have referred to those meetings that we had, uh, Karen, in your opening. We agreed, I suppose we agreed on a new approach and the revised approach whereby I would lead with a broadened diversity and inclusion strategy, which would be critically embedded into our business strategy and linked to our vision and values. So that, you know, there was a meaning behind uh, what, you know, there was a reason for, 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 for what we were doing. And although this was an agreed approach, I really did need buy-in uh, from my organisational leaders. Because as I said, I just got the sense that it wasn't, it was just an add-on, it wasn't key uh, to our business decision-making. So we agreed on approach, on an approach, and uh, Karen uh, helped facilitate a number of workshops and a number of work uh, interviews that, that sort of went for a few months. Uh, in developing uh, our new uh, Fulton Hogan, our new diversity and inclusion strategy. And if I can just sort of reflect on, well, how did we make that work and why was it successful, is that if I, if I look at the key uh, inputs into that strategy, is that with the, with the assistance of Karen and those workshops and interviews, we had the input and acceptance uh, during that process uh, by our top 100 operational and functional leaders in the company who were now importantly very highly engaged in the process. 
there was a clear message that was endorsed by me on why it was important and why we were doing it. And as I've said a couple of times, our diversity and inclusion was linked to business strategy and it became central to business success. And then we set some clear and measurable objectives to raise awareness and identify behaviours. And I can sort of still, I recall and, and, and still reflect on some of those meetings and some of those workshops. And I do recall watching with some degree of pleasure how some of my leaders and some of my managers and the shift or change in approach during those workshops, when they started to realise that diversity and business, uh, business success were very strong, strongly dependent on each other. And as Karen says in the book, they, to, to, to use one of Karen's uh, phrases, they started to see and believe in the diversity dividend. And once they got that connection, then we, we, we started to see, see a change. But importantly in framing, I mean, it was important also not only to have the buy-in or the, 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 the engagement from the leadership team was that how could we frame a strategy that could be easily communicated uh, and understood importantly to three and a half thousand employees who were scattered across the country, who were scattered, who were working in about 45 fixed locations and about 20 project locations around the country. So how could we get that information out there and how could we make sure that even though as a leadership team, uh, we believe this was the right thing to do, that we could cascade that message down to a number of different work, work, work groups, ranging in size from you know remote laying crews of 10 or 12 people to major sort of state or, or regional centres with, with, with a couple of hundred people there. So how could we make, uh, get that message? Uh, how could we frame that message in a way that was easily sort of disseminated across those groups? So if I can just share some of the extracts from that diversity and inclusion strategy, my opening statement, um, and this was really the link to business strategy, my opening statement in the, in the inclusion, diversity and inclusion strategy was, our enduring success relies on generating new and different ideas and perspectives. And this is underpinned by the diversity of our people and being representative of the communities in which we operate. So again, linking it to our business strategy of being with, with communities. We then went on um, to outline how this would help us in terms of our journey and how this would help us in delivering on our vision of being an enduring, an enduring business, working with, working with our communities. And there are a number of statements that we included in the strategy. And again, for me, this was just so critical in being able to, to, to get that message out there to the broader business. And again, I'll share some of those statements with you. Is, you know, it helped you, just, just, just sort of phrasing these, helping us to make informed decisions about how we organise and optimise resources and work by eliminating structural and cultural barriers, protect and enhance our licence to operate by recognising, respecting and taking into account the needs and interests of diverse state, uh, stakeholders, deliver strong performance and growth by being able to attract, engage and retain diverse talent, innovate by drawing on the diverse perspective, skills and experience of our employees and other stakeholders, adapt and respond effectively to changing societal expectations, overall be a great place to work and creating a workplace where everyone uh, feels valued. So as you can see in those statements, we intentionally did not focus on using the term gender diversity. We focused on diversity as a broader term and focused on diversity as a key central plank 
to business success going forward. And I, I truly believe that this was this was the the, the shift change that we were looking for in, 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 in the management team and the leadership team. Um, you know, we, we then went on and we shared, we made sure that there were some clear sort of commitment statements in that strategy so that importantly, we could hold them up to the business and hold managers and leaders to account to make sure that we were delivering on the strategy. And it wasn't, and really it wasn't until we'd finalised uh, this new strategy that I truly believed uh, that my leadership team was supportive and would be fully engaged in the journey, as engaged in the journey as I wanted, as I was, and as I wanted them to be. Um, so reflecting on that couple of years and reflecting on um, uh, the help that, that Karen had given, uh, not only myself, but, but Fulton Hogan in general, is that that whole experience with Fulton Hogan really reinforced with me um, four, I've just jotted them down here, four key elements uh, of a successful diversity and inclusion strategy. And the first is that it must have broad senior leadership support. It's no good if only a handful of leaders are supportive. It's either all in or it just won't work, it'll fail. And it needs to become part of the daily conversation. I mean, I made it, I made it a point of every time I was out and about in the business, in all of my you know, one-on-one -on -one discussions, team discussions, management discussions, no matter what it was, is that I was talking about diversity and how uh, we were going against um, against the strategy and how we were tracking against the strategy. And I made a point of making sure that you know I demonstrated that leadership support by you know, even things like having boardroom lunches with some of the you know the young graduates that had just joined uh, the business, so that you know they could share with me uh, some of their first impressions of Fulton Hogan, you know, was the prom was, was, was reality actually, was, was, was what we promised them during the, 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 the career days of university, was that actually reality in terms of once they joined us? And it's interesting, it's interesting the feedback you get if you give, uh, give people the opportunity to share their experiences with you. That was the first one. The second one was to have a clear and consistent message. It's no good having, uh, which is easily communicated to all employees, it's, it's, it's just, there's no value in having a strategy that sits on the desk, that sits on the shelf, uh, unless it's something that people can grab hold of, people can talk about. Everyone understands it, it's consistent, it has a clear message, uh, and it, it just it just becomes part of the, not, not only the culture, but part of the narrative in the organisation. So it just becomes part of the everyday conversation. And must hold leaders, the third point is must hold leaders accountable, as we do with every business objective in KPI. Every time we, uh, we, we talk about any uh, business objective or, or uh, any strategy or, or any initiative, there's always a, well, okay, what's the KPI? What's the measure of success? So that needs to be part of the strategy as well. And finally, it must be embedded. It must be embedded in the overall uh, business strategy. And, and, you know, I've been through this a, a couple of journeys in Fulton Hogan, and, and my learning is that if there's not a clear link between diversity and strategy, it will most likely always be viewed as just an add-on, just an add-on to management discussion. And you know, one, if, if it stays in that, if it stays in that domain, it'll never get any traction. So look, they, I see those four points uh, that, that that have sort of stayed with me. I see many examples. I've, I have read the whole book, Karen. Thank you. Thank you for my coffee. I see many examples of those 
behaviours, those four points in, in, in Beach and the bias. But importantly, uh, you know, particularly in the later parts of the, of the book, I also see many other really practical skills that not only I can use, but anyone can use, but that I can use when I have my next opportunity um, to lead and influence an organisation or a team of people. So on a final note, thank you. Thank you, Karen, for your assistance and guidance um, during my time at Fulton Hogan. I, you know, you mentioned at the start that uh, this was part of the legacy that I wanted to leave, and I don't believe that that would have been possible without uh, your guidance along the way. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Nick, and we can all give Nick a virtual round of applause. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a very unusual book launch with only one glass of champagne. I, I was keep looking around for my waiter uh, to walk past with another tray. But um, Nick, I, I loved listening to that story and I loved reading your story. I think one of the things that uh, really stood out to me was um, for a construction uh, or an infrastructure and construction organisation, it would have been a very simple thing to do to almost ignore values and uh, ignore diversity and inclusion and get on with the, you know, the business of being men who are building big things. So I, I really appreciate the, the purposeful nature in which you uh, approach that. Um, it's very inspiring. Thank you. Thank you. Um, no, thank you. And thank you for sharing your story in the book. Um, we're going to uh, welcome um, Leslie Williams now, who is a publisher and the director of Major Street Publishing. With over 25, ex uh, 25 years experience in the publishing industry, Leslie's experience spans trade, mass market and self-publishing in Australia and across the globe. Leslie is a hands-on publisher who loves the whole publishing process. She believes that every book should be a quality publication that the author is immensely proud of. Uh, Leslie works with thought leaders and experts in business, leadership, property and the share market, investment, financial planning and superannuation. And uh, I'm going to call Leslie to publish my first book after reading that bio. <laughs> so, Leslie, over to you. Thanks very much, Nick. And thanks, everybody, for coming along. And thank you, Karen, for inviting me to say a few words. So, first of all, I'd like to congratulate Karen. This is her, the second book she's published with Major Street. And she didn't mention, but her first book, Lead Like a Coach, was also picked up by a US publisher, which is quite unusual for an Australian book to be published in the US. So huge congratulations to that for that as well. Uh, so when I was working out what to talk to you about, I thought I'm going to count how many authors we have who are female and how many who are male, just to see if there is a gender bias amongst our publishing list. So I went back to 2015 and I was quite surprised. We had 23 female authors and 23 male authors. So you know, we're doing something right. Um, and I'd also, I also like to say that we pay the same royalty rate to men as to women. So we're definitely on the gender, the gender um, equality bandwagon there. So people have talked about Karen's writing, but as well as being extremely well researched and there's, there's lots of case studies, there are very practical tips, which I think is what sets her books apart, that she can distill quite complex information and research into very readable text. So once again, I commend her on that. And people have mentioned the bias buster at the end of the chapter, but those really are something if you're flicking through, you get something immediately that you can pick up on and, and take into your workplace and learn from. So that's great. Um, so uh, we'd like you, I'd like to encourage you all to buy a 
copy of Karen's book or books, and I think she is selling them um, here for after this event. Um, you can also buy them online, so they're on Amazon, Booktopia, Dimmicks, blah, blah, blah. Um, but what we'd really like you to do after you bought the book and read it, if you like it, would be to go and give us a review. So that's what drives uh, sales for us. If you could hop back online and review the book, that would be wonderful. You also might like to mention on LinkedIn that you've been to the book launch and you've read the book. And if you do, if you could tag Karen and Major Street, that would be wonderful. Uh, that's about all I wanted to say, really. Once again, thanks so much for supporting the book. Uh, thank you, Karen, for publishing with Major Street. Happy to talk about a third book, and you never know, we might have an in-person book launch then. <laughs> thanks, well, everybody. That would be wonderful, Leslie. And it's great <laughs> to hear about your very balanced author list. Yes. But um, who, who delivers their manuscripts on time more, though, men or women? Women. 